0: Hey everyone, Mikkel here. Okay, before we get into today's episode, I want to get some feedback from you, the listener. We're looking at ways that we can take the podcast in new directions, new guests that we want to have on the show, new ideas we want to share with you. So we have a lot of threads going for this at Expat Money Forum, our private Facebook group. If you go to expatmoneyforum.com, you can join the conversation. I want to hear feedback from you guys. What topics have we not covered that you want to hear more of? Do you want to hear more stories from successful expats who have moved offshore? Do you want to hear more business-related stuff, more finance-related stuff? Are you more interested in immigration and visas and passports is it the investments or real estate i want to know what you are interested in this show is not about me it is about you guys it is about all of my amazing listeners and trying to help inspire you and get you the best up-to-date knowledge every single wednesday when i publish this show so Join the conversation at Expat Money Forum. Let me know what you think, what you want to hear more about, how I can best serve you. It's really important to me to make this show the absolute best in our space. And I think we're off to a really good start. Podcast has been going for over four years now, which is just hard to believe. It seems like just yesterday I started it. And the feedback has been amazing. But there's always room to improve. There's always things we can do better. So share your knowledge, share your expertise, share what you want to hear, share your wants, your desires, your needs, your goals, everything with us at Expat Money Forum. I really appreciate it and enjoy today's episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome everyone. This is the Expat Money Show. Today I am so thrilled to have with us a friend of mine that I met while traveling through New York. He is an absolute ninja entrepreneur. He started Fitbark. Basically, Fitbit for dogs, and he is killing it. His product is in over 125 different countries, and he is currently working on Joyride, an Uber application that couples trivia with ride-sharing. You can visit it at playjoyride.com. Please welcome to the show, Michael
1: Chang. Michael, how are you? Hey, I'm very, very good. I'm very happy to be on the show, and thank you for having me. Absolutely. We're
0: thrilled to have you here. So, Mike, why don't you just take a couple of minutes and give us a bit of a backstory on how you became an entrepreneur and what that means to you?
1: Yeah, sure, sure thing. I'm New York, born and raised. I think my story really starts here, and right out of college, I studied in finance, so I got a job on Wall Street as a trader. But I think my entrepreneurial journey started way before then, Through my mom as a kid, watching her, she's in real estate, very entrepreneurial minded. And what that means to me is essentially that if there is a problem, she learns as much about it as she possibly can and she does what she can to solve that problem, right, with the resources that she has. So to me, it's just about solving problems that we have. I think anybody who does that with the resources that they can manage is an entrepreneur. So that mindset was instilled to me at a very young age. But my real journey started right out of my first job. I was I was a trader on Wall Street, and I, with my uh, ex girlfriend of mine, we we managed to get a dog and ended up being my first pet in my life. And had no idea what it meant to be a dog owner and all sorts of things. Looking for the right, you know, sitter if we're traveling. Looking for the right food to give him. So this kind of a need drove me to kind of create a product around that. Basically, through my love for my dog, I, I created a website for helping other like-minded dog people that lives around you. So you can meet up, share advice, and you know, have your dogs play with each other and even help you know, dogs at each other when you're not in town. So that was my first product called MatchPuppy.com. And through that was a very great learning experience. I managed to meet more awesome folks along that ride as we built out this product, which eventually led me to FitBark which is, as you mentioned, a activity tracker for your dog with the goal of it being essentially a health monitor that dog owners can utilize to see how well the pet is doing and kind of act like a voice uh, for their dog since, you know, our dogs can't really tell us how they're feeling. So that's, you know, been the journey from Match Puppy to Fit Bark and me kind of entering the whole entrepreneurial route and even in the pet space. This was just a few years back.
0: I was on your website on fitbark.com, and I thought one of the really interesting things that I saw on it is that you can actually chart the movement so that you can see if you can identify early if there's any type of health problems with your pet or if there's any things that you should have to watch out for.
1: Absolutely. So it's a Fitbit for your dog, but ultimately we want it to be a health monitor. We want to provide as much data points for you as a dog parent to know fully well how your dog is doing so you can take the best you know, actionable results for your, for your pet, for your loved one. So yeah.
0: That's awesome. So that's kind of a bit about your backstory about where you started as an entrepreneur. I would love to hear what you're working on right now.
1: Yeah, yeah. Very, very cool. So currently I'm working on an app called Joyride. It's meant to be a game that you play when you're on an Uber. So it's an app that you can utilize to even call the Uber to help get you from A to B. But essentially it's just uh, trivia questions. Actually, just 10 trivia questions. And if you get it all right, you win a prize. In this case, we pay for your entire ride. So if you beat the game, we'll pay for your ride no matter how much it costs.
0: So let me get this straight. Someone gets in an Uber, they have your app running, they've ordered the Uber with your app, and while they're taking their journey, the questions come up on the app.
1: Yeah, yeah. We actually created it so you see the UI of a map where you see yourself in real time and the questions pop up where you need to move from checkmark to checkmark on real-time basis as you move around in the city. So perfect. So
0: it's trivia-based, and if they get all 10 questions right, then you actually pay for their Uber trip. Exactly. And it doesn't matter if their Uber trip is $50 or $80 or whatever it might cost, your company is going to pay for it?
1: If it's $800, we're, we're paying for it. <laughs> so wow. if you're on a long, you know, you know, long journey, we're, we're still paying for it. Just got to get all 10 questions right. Wow.
0: That's unbelievable. I can't wait to see that come out. So what is the timeline for uh, for this app, for Joyride?
1: We're expecting to release, you know, shortly within the next four weeks. So I would say by, you know, February of this year. So
0: February 2018, and we should see it in the iOS store. We're going to see it on uh, Google Play as well?
1: Shortly after. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Shortly after.
0: So I would love to talk a little bit about what it was like to create an app, um, because I think that if someone listening to this wanted to create up an app of their own, what kind of steps would you uh, encourage them to take?
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's a question I get asked very often by friends since we're in this space. But my best answer has always been to just share the idea. You know, I think this goes towards anything beyond just apps. You know, whether it's a product, it's a service, whatever you're trying to build here. Obviously, it's coming from a passion because I believe those are mostly the best indicators of a successful product, is passion. And again, it has to be close to your heart. So it's something that I think the first step should be is just to share with people around you and also to share with people that might not be in your circle. So you might get other kinds of perspectives on that idea. And this is a very critical process because I think from sharing it, you get to build on top of the idea. You get to see how other people who might see the idea or how someone else might utilize it and might give you more ideas when you're trying to build it. So I think that's step one is to share it with as many people as you can. But towards actually building an app, I think it's either many folks nowadays know how to code themselves. So they either know native iOS or React or any of these languages and they know how to build the applications themselves or they can either easily There are many resources out there now, both online and in-person, where you can take a course on how to create an app, and there's various websites that I can share. But if you're like me, who knows to code a little bit, but obviously wouldn't trust myself building a, a product like this by myself, I went out through the years and I've basically worked with many developers and we formed a team for my company where we have a staff of engineers on hand to work together on this product.
0: So basically what you're saying is when you have an idea for an application, you want to talk to your network and maybe people even outside of your network and get opinions from them and then kind of reflect on how they view it. So if they think it's a good idea, if this is something that should be tweaked, if this is something that you should throw away, is that what you're saying?
1: Exactly. I'm very much sharing the uh, idea, kind of an entrepreneur. I know a lot of folks out there are very secretive about what they're building. And it's, you know, that's, that's a very good thing to have. Obviously, you don't want to share with every single person, but I'm very much in favor of sharing it with your circle and even, you know, select folks beyond your network, because by sharing it, you get a lot of feedback, whether it's a solid idea You know, how to even take upon building it. Maybe you're going to meet somebody who believes in it as much as you can, and you can start forming a team around it. So it's all very much towards taking positive actions on getting this idea to the next level, which is building it.
0: So tell me some of the reactions you had from people when you proposed Joyride.
1: Yeah. So for this product at hand, it's very much a question of why hasn't somebody else done it? You know, why hasn't Uber done it? Um, That's one of the major questions for us. And we still constantly ask it, we're like, why hasn't somebody just created a game on top of their, you know, the Uber API or the Lyft API or on top of, you know, any ride-hailing businesses? Um, you know, for us, we, we think Uber and, and Lyft are very much focused on their mission still of capturing, um, you know, this emerging market share of, um, you know, more and more folks hailing a transportation service rather than taking a cab or, utilizing a, um, you know, metro transportation such as a subway or, you know, a train. We think they're focused on that mission. So for us, um, at, at least, we think we're, we're just creating on top of their API. So we're just creating fun experiences that, you know, Uber might not even have the interest at hand to to work on it at the moment.
0: Well, and I suppose the nice thing for them is actually not costing them any money for you to promote their product. So it's free advertising for them.
1: Absolutely. At the end of the day, um, you know, we're not building a transportation service. It's very much powered by Uber. You know, the Uber car is what's coming when they picks you up through our app. So, yeah. It's very much promoting Uber in a way. Excellent.
0: But Uber branding is not on your website or not on the
1: app, right? It's purely your app. Yes, we're not sponsored by Uber. You know, we're not invested in by Uber. We're just an application that's on top of the API.
0: That's awesome. So can you explain a little bit what the process is like for getting an application built with your engineers, with your team? How long does something like that take? What should the expectations be if my listeners wanted to do something like this themselves?
1: Yeah, yeah. So so the team consists, I, I'll start here. So our team consists of, um, you know, iOS engineers, um, a back-end developer, uh, you know, a designer uh, and a product manager, right? And most teams will revolve around these kind of, um, um, you know, positions uh, because uh, you need the designer to essentially create the look and feel for the product and the brand and, and essentially, um, you know, the engineers basically implement them into actionable things within the app. So for, the, for any button to work, for anything to actually move in and make sense is the engineer's job, right? And then the product manager essentially is the, uh, the team captain or, or the, um, the quarterback that essentially plays the, me- the medium role within all these other positions to make sure at the end of the day, um, you know, your vision as the founder or, or the, you know, the, the head CEO it's being implemented by all these other, um, you know, teammates. Um, so the first step will essentially be, you know, most of the time is to be mocking up wireframes and designs of the product that you want to build. You know, whether uh, in this case it's an app. So most of the times they'll be showing you uh, the workflow of uh, of the app. So from the first screen, which is when you open up the app, towards the sign up process towards, um, you know, whatever you're essentially building here. In our case, it's a game. So for us, it would be, you know, what does the game look like? What happens? What are the in-game mechanics and all sorts of things? Uh, What does it look like when you win? What does it look like when you lose? And et cetera. Um, So once that process essentially, it's a never-ending process because you're constantly improving upon the design. But ultimately, once you get a good hold of what the product um, process looks like, you can get the engineers to you know, start coding it, really, and start testing out uh, pieces by pieces uh, if those actions that you want in the app are being implemented in the right way. Uh, so it's, it's essentially, um, you know, if you think about it like basketball, it's essentially you know, passing the ball between each of these positions constantly and trying to get yourself closer and closer to the hoop and through the basket.
0: That's fantastic. So talk to me a little bit about the timeline. How, do, how long has it taken
1: you guys to develop Joyride? So for us, it's been a make of the past few months, well say, you know, five to six months currently. It depends, right? It depends on a lot of things. I usually recommend if you're a first-time entrepreneur or just, you know, if this is your idea and you're just trying to create a prototype to see what people think about it so you can show them, I usually refer to the MVP model, which to uh, many of the listeners out there, it stands for minimum viable product. Essentially, what it means is you're trying to build something at a very minimum basis. So it, it might not look nice. It might not look polished. You might be embarrassed to show somebody, but it works at a very core level of what you're trying to do. And then you could at least walk around. Show to people, have them use it, have them give you real-life feedback and see if it's actually working and if it's solving the problem that you tend to solve, right? And the industry it's called an MVP, and I usually recommend a lot of people to build an MVP, which usually does not take very long. Many of the ideas out there can be built, I personally think, within a weekend. If you have the right staff and engineer available, many things can be built within a weekend. And you can easily take that and go out into the market and test it real fast, and see if it's working or what you need to change to make it work. And if it's something that's even good for you to follow through, right? Maybe you see it, you build it, and you find out that, hey, it's actually not a good idea. Maybe, maybe it inspires you to pivot and change the idea into something else. Because you finally realize the market is needing something and you see it clearly with this product that you just built.
0: So I think that's what they call failing fast. So if you're going to uh, build something or start a business, you need to trial it as fast as possible. Because if it's not going to work, you want to know within the first week or so, opposed to putting six months or a year of your life into it, becoming in love with the product or idea, only to find out it's not going to work at all.
1: Absolutely. It's it's about managing resources at the end of the day, right? With your limited resources, in this case, many times it's, it's time and then money. You want to make sure that you manage it well, right? If it's not an idea that's going to work out, you don't want to spend six months of your life on it.
0: That makes perfect sense. So speaking of which, when you started Joyride, did you change the idea much? Did you pivot much? Or is it pretty much the same as when you began the first concept, when you
1: started your MVP? For us, we've actually changed it a bit. I wouldn't say we pivoted an entire 90 degrees or 180 degrees. It's very much still a game for when you're on an Uber. The actual game itself has changed. The actual gameplay, which started off not being a trivia game. It initially, was a, <laughs> it was a Pac-Man kind of game where you guys, you get to control a, a character to move around as you're on a car. And ultimately, we went with uh, trivia because it reaches a broader audience. So, yeah, the actual game idea has changed, but the product idea has not. It's still very much a game that you play during the time that you're on a Uber. Awesome. So. I know that
0: you can't release the numbers specifically for your application, but if in general terms, if someone wanted to build an app and they expected it to be successful and they were going to hire a team of people to do it, what type of costs would you expect something like that to be?
1: Yeah. So, uh, and again, these numbers vary drastically uh, depending on the, the skill level of the engineers and designers and the amount of time that you want them committing, right? But for I would say for the standard app out there, if this is something that you're hiring contractors to work on kind of on a part-time basis, I would say you you want something at a minimum of, of a 10K to you know 20K spend for at least the initial MVP. And again, these numbers vary drastically. I'm just throwing <laughs> random numbers out there, but it's a very standard number to have like 10K to 20K because you want to have enough, just in case you have to pivot. But at the same time, you could definitely find a lot of good work online. You know, using websites such as Upwork, Fiverr, and all these websites where you can find amazing talent across the world that can build and help you, you know, make something, you know, overnight for really effective, cost-effective uh, price.
0: Excellent. So basically. The steps, if someone wanted to create an app, would be that they should start sharing their ideas with people straight off the bat and get feedback from trusted people, see what they say. The next step would be to create an MVP. Maybe it might take a weekend or a week and to have at least a bankroll of, say, 10 to 20K in case you need to pivot the idea to a different direction. Does that kind of summarize the the steps someone might need to take if they want to develop an app of their own?
1: Yeah, yeah. Those would be the steps. And again, those numbers are just numbers that I've seen within the range of, but again, they vary drastically. So they're just, you know, they're for kind of an idea purpose, but those would be the steps. Mm -hmm.
0: Perfect. So can you tell me any times that you maybe tried to create an app or tried to create an entrepreneurial venture and you just failed? You just fell on your face, Mike?
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's a very good question. I think it's (laughs) There's so many.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I always think that it's a good idea to showcase people's failures so that others out there can understand that this is not an overnight success, that being an entrepreneur actually is really hard. And a lot of people, they failed many times before they became a success. And also what those things were that they learned along the way. So I'd really love to hear kind of about your
1: journey uh, with failure and your opinion of it, Mike. Yeah, so I actually have three examples in my mind, which just means how, how close <laughs> these failures have been to, to me. But the first one being a fashion tech startup that I was a early member of during my early years as an entrepreneur. It was a clothing line that essentially had ink that would be able to change once you're in the sun with the sun hitting it or not. To, when the sun hits it, uh, the black and white ink turns into color. It was a fashion tech startup that was Way before its years, so that was the first kind of mistake, if you will. You know, timing is everything, unfortunately. If the market is not ready for something like your product, then it doesn't matter how hard you try. It, it just it's a big mountain to to try to get across. I think that was the biggest mistake was the the timing was off, and we were just so stubborn in our kind of mission to get smart kind of clothing to the market that you know we were just I mean this was early, this was in two thousand and you know eight, right. So this is way before you know, wearable computing took off, before you know, any kind of IoT devices really came forth. So we're just too early. And looking back now, it's just stubborn in our ways where we just spend money educating people. And that money could have been better used. You know, we kept inventory when we didn't need to. Just a lot of you know, mistakes that you know, as you learn through it, it becomes very obvious as to why the venture have failed.
0: What do they say? Looking back is 2020. Looking back, you're able to connect all the dots. Yeah. But at the time, all obviously you believe you're doing the right thing. So I, I've been in similar situations as you just described and then being stubborn and thinking about these sunk costs of what I had put into the business when possibly I should have taken that money and put it into a new venture.
1: Right, right. And, and for us too, it's just uh, so many obvious signs where we could have pivoted and turned it into something else and the business would have been you know, a strong one. But we were very stubborn in our ways to, you know, to go for the long journey and and create this massive brand that is all about wearable and smart clothing. And again, like you said, the the biggest mistake was just being stubborn here in our case and not being able to look with a good perspective on what's really happening at the moment. So that's the first one. The second one was actually my my venture that I mentioned before called Match Puppy. I was a little bit more seasoned in this case, although we did raise an angel round. But ultimately, through the product, I've realized certain cases where it wasn't working and was able to quickly move from one venture to starting another one called Fitbark, right? And being in that kind of pet space allowed me to have an industry perspective or insiders operating kind of viewpoint um, the opportunity at hand with a product like FitBark. And it allowed us to basically be one of the, you know, if not the first kind of product built for dogs in terms of, you know, a fitness tracker or a wearable, you know, activity monitor in the space. So that, that mistake early on with the clothing line allowed me not to make the same mistake in, in, with Match Puppy. So I, I knew to basically take my resources and my time to move on to another venture which ultimately proved out to be uh, a much better success so that's the second one and the third one was not very much a failure it, it was just i guess i kind of wanted to point out to the to the listeners out there that failures doesn't have to be such a big drastic thing either it doesn't need to be such an epic failure that your life is in shambles and that that's the only kind of failure you need to learn from no failures can be small as well or they can be not even looked upon as a failure so My third example is a product that my current company actually launched just two years ago. It was an app called Spinny Phone. To many people, it was a success. It was a game for iOS. And we reached top 30 free app in the United States and top 10 free game. We were able to get Quickly, like 200,000 downloads within just a matter of three to four days, and ultimately reaching almost a million users. For me, it was a failure in that we weren't able to figure out how to properly retain those users. So, even with the fact of getting these many users on our app, we weren't able to retain them and bring them back. So, that this app is widely utilized. It's just an app that people downloaded, played it for a little bit, and ultimately stopped coming back after a few days. That failure. I learned upon that.
0: So I guess moving forwards now with Joyride, that customer retention is something that was probably really in the forefront of your mind. Absolutely. Excellent, excellent. So what are your goals going forward then, Michael?
1: <laughs> my goals going forward, I think, is the same with everyone. <laughs> to launch my app <laughs> and try to get as many people on it, but also this time try to get as many people to constantly come back. It's equally as important to retain people, if not even more important. Because I'd rather spend money to get them on it but to make sure they stay on it rather than get a million people on it and never come back. So it very much is, is at the forefront, as you said, for me. Going
0: forwards, do you think you'll continue to develop apps or do you think you're going to move into other spaces as an
1: entrepreneur? It's a good question. It all depends on how well Joyride goes. <laughs> I think for, for myself, I, I see myself as an entrepreneur. And, and like I said earlier, for me, it's a state of mind. For me, it's how you view the world and how you view tackling problems, right? For me, the best kind of entrepreneurs are the ones who are able to turn problems into an opportunity. So I, I think, you know, that will never change for me. I, I think in my life, I constantly look around uh, on a daily basis on what I can turn problems into opportunities. And for me, ultimately, on my entrepreneurial journey, whether it's in the app space or it's in, you know, some other industry, real estate or anything, it's ultimately about building products for me. So it's about building stuff uh, and, and building value. So wherever you know, I see the next opportunity, it could be in any, any industry. It doesn't have to be an app. But for me, it's very much building products and such. That's awesome. So I'm going to paint a little bit of a picture
0: how it was we met. So I came to New York in December for the next web, which was a technology conference. There was about a 1000 tech leaders from all over the planet. And I was at a VIP speakers and media only after hours party. And me and Michael ended up speaking and talking and he introduced himself as an entrepreneur. Now I've had a lot of people say they were an entrepreneur. But it wasn't until we really started chatting and got down to it. And he explained the things that he's accomplished and explained the businesses he had. And I was absolutely floored. And I was like, wow, this guy really is an entrepreneur. He really embodies all those characteristics that you just mentioned just now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's great. Great that we have met and, and you put that very nicely. <laughs> So,
0: Mike, what do you think is hot these days with technology, with entrepreneurship, with business moving forward? We're at the beginning of 2018 right now. What do you think is going to be really
1: hot these days? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the, with the obvious answer being uh, Bitcoin cryptocurrency. Let's just you know, without having to talk about about you know Bitcoin, I think I personally think we're very much on the forefront of the beginning stages of augmented reality. I think with Apple releasing their Later, there's iPhone with their built-in camera and the whole you know, kit for developers to develop. We're seeing very much the trend of when the iPhone just got released. You saw the apps that were very much rudimentary. You know, they were very much utilities that people have built. They couldn't really find a real use for the iPhone yet. But very soon after, a few years later, you came forward with apps such as you know, Facebook. I mean, ultimately, later on, there's you know, Grubhub. There's Ubers and Instagrams. And these very much are entire, you know, billion dollar businesses built on top of the iPhone. I think we're at the, the cusp of when things are slowly about to turn in for, for AR um, applications, right? So I think that's very exciting to watch and see. You know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Snapchat and, and all these face filters. I think it's as silly as they are, they're changing how we communicate with each other, right? It started as kind of like AOL instant messengers through text. Obviously, with email throughout and slowly you know selfies, and now we added another layer of face filters on top of it, and very soon you know Apple already released the whole Animoji thing where you can just you know move your head around as as emoji and it communicates to your friend or family member so I think this is just the start of something big that's about to happen in AR.
0: That's unbelievable. Yeah, I'm going to need to learn more about this because I haven't really looked at that space at all. It sounds really interesting. So listen, what are some of the skills that you think are going to be really needed going forward in the next generation? Skills that the next generation might need to develop, say, in the next 10 to 20 years?
1: The current younger generations are, are already, you know, learning how to code and, and learning how to program is already being taught along in most schools at least, uh, just alongside math and English. And I think that's, that's great. And I think even the ones who haven't had them in, in the schools as a, pro, as, a, as a program is also trying to learn it elsewhere through free programs online, through, through even games that are, that are built to teach coding. I think coding is going to be like knowing how to calculate you know, math, arithmetic for the next generation. So I think that's, that's definitely the, one of the most important things as a skill. But I think also in a broader sense, I think having perspective is something that I think the future generations and even us is something critical and will become even more critical just because we are so inundated with technology and with services that make our lives easier. It becomes a funnel where it's hard to see what's out there or what's possible, right, because everything becomes so automated that, you know, to me, sometimes it feels like you're in the matrix. Everything becomes so robotic, if you will, which is not a bad thing, right? You know, technology is meant to help make our lives easier and ultimately better. But I think for the younger generations, you know, if I have, I don't have kids, but if I have kids, I think I would really try to instill the idea of having a perspective that is enveloping multiple, you know, senses where you know, traveling helps with that, right? Um, reading more books, understanding other cultures. I think it's critical because it helps you become creative and, and look at problems through different lenses where, you know, maybe we'll create, you know, solutions to problems that, you know, we might never imagine, right? So I think that's something, a skill set uh, for the younger generation, I think definitely should have. Fantastic.
0: I've noticed a couple of times you have referred to problems and solutions, and that you actually got this type of a mindset from your mother as a real estate agent. So as you go forward as an entrepreneur, that's one of the main things you seem to focus on. Would this be something you would recommend to all people?
1: One thousand percent. You know, I think in life, not to go by this cliche quote, you know, when life gives you lemons, but I think you can either do something about the problems at hand or, or do nothing. Right. And I think if you're going to face them, you might as well do something about it. And the best way to do something about it is to have a clear mind and, and view it not as a problem, but to view it as an opportunity. Because once you change that mindset, you start seeing things differently. Doors start to open, literally. And you start looking for ways to make the situation better. And ultimately, turn it into your advantage, right? Make it into something that's going to better yourself. There's always a way to, to, to do that. And I think that depends on how creative you are, uh, which uh, ultimately... It, you know, means having different perspectives, right? Uh, Leading back to the previous question. So, yeah, I think I would recommend anyone and everyone to have a mindset that allows them to, you know, see any problem into an opportunity. Excellent. Life does not get better when you you see, you know, life like that. Nothing will stress you.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Hey, guys, we will just take a quick break. We're just going to pause for a second on the interview because I want to tell you about this special resource that I have for you. It's called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Abroad. It is a PDF downloadable report and you're going to find it at expatmoneyshow.com. Okay, why do I want to tell you about this? Well, it is an amazing resource for anyone out there who is looking to go offshore, to become an expat, expat hopefuls, if you're looking at immigration or Plan B residencies or any of these types of things that we talk about on the show, this really condenses the information into really easy to understand. And then from there, it gives you all the resources, links to the additional resources or who you can work with, the professionals involved in this. So I've had some amazing feedback on this and I wanna give it to you free, 100% free. All you need to do is go to expatmoneyshow.com and at the very top of the page, you will see the special report. You can sign up. There's no credit card needed. There's no nothing like that. I just want you to have this resource because I think it's really important and I think it's gonna really serve you well. So enjoy, go to expatmoneyshow.com, download your free special report and let's jump back into today's interview. So we talked a little bit about the skills going forwards, and we talked about coding, which maybe can be taught in schools, and then we talked about perspective, which maybe can be learned out in the real world, traveling, reading, experiencing things firsthand. So I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are about formal education.
1: Yes, it's a great question. I, 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 my thoughts, uh, you know, I have friends who have uh, obviously, you know, the successful ones who have dropped out uh, in college and, and managed to build you know, huge businesses and, and you know, the guys who have dropped out doesn't mean that they, they don't value education. They, no, they're constantly reading books and they're trying to get as much knowledge as possible, right? They're constantly learning. Just because you're not in a formal education such as, you know, attending a university doesn't mean that you stop learning. And I think learning is one of the keys to success, not just as an entrepreneur, but I think in life in general. So to me, I, I don't think, you know, if uh, formal education necessarily means Learning, I think you can definitely do that regardless if you have attended universities or not. Knowledge is everywhere. Many times, the best knowledge is free knowledge, right? There's, the internet has so much stuff. YouTube has so much stuff. You can learn how to do anything on YouTube. <laughs> or nowadays, you can, you can find experts on anything and, and learn from them, even for free. So, A, I, I wanted to point out that no, I don't think a formal education necessarily dictates success or that knowledge only comes from a formal education. Um, But at the same time, I believe that I think, you know, a formal education nowadays is a bit lacking. I think uh, it's not very much built as a product, right? If you look at universities or a formal education as a product, I think it needs to be updated. The model needs to be updated because I don't think it has the right focus at hand or the right values that it's trying to, to uh, instill in our um, in the students, because I don't think it's teaching them enough, right? Coding, for one. I don't think uh, nowadays there's a lot of emphasis on getting coding available to as many people going through the school system. But that's just the beginning. You know, previously, it didn't. Second, I also think there's many other things such as, you know, learning how to you know apply for a credit card, even uh, having a credit history. These very much critical things that not only a successful entrepreneur needs, but just to live life, right? Yep. You know, Buying a car, buying a house, building credit, these very basic things that are in our society that you need to live uh, a life on is not being taught in, in a form of education nowadays. So I think, yeah, I think it needs to be updated. It needs to be approved upon, especially if you look at it as a product. It's outdated. So there needs to be a lot of pivoting and building upon.
0: Yeah, I think that going back to your word earlier about pivoting, I think that there's going to be a, a huge shift, a p- huge paradigm shift in education going forward. And a lot of these universities are going to need to pivot if they want to stay relevant. Absolutely, yeah. So let me ask you, do you spend a lot of your time? Do you read? Do you study? Do you take online courses?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Constantly, you know, <laughs> reading physical books. In my car, I'm, I'm constantly on Audible, so I'm also listening to, to e-books. Uh, I love reading. Uh, I love reading. I think reading is one of the best ways to really learn as, as much, you know, both literature and, and non-literature. Um, online courses, I'm constantly on YouTube uh, learning something new every day. It can be something simple, such as <laughs> how to tie a bow tie <laughs> to something much more you know, philosophical. Uh, to anything, right? I'm constantly learning something and I actually made it my personal goal to uh, to learn something every day. But not only that, and also to, to try to teach someone something every single day. At least one thing because I think that's also really, really powerful. Excellent. So giving back to the community. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, that's what you're doing right now on the podcast, because I know my listeners are going to get heaps of value from you on this episode, Mike.
1: Great. I can check it off for today.
0: <laughs> so tell me a couple of the books that really influenced you to become an entrepreneur or helped you on your journey to be an entrepreneur.
1: Oh, well, A, I think my favorite author is Malcolm Gladwell. I think this uh, he's one of the most brilliant geniuses. Isn't he just terrific? Oh, my goodness. He is amazing. I recommend all his books, you know, Outliers. You know, Shoe Dog, Blinking, Tipping Point, all of them. Yeah, I, I recommend. But there's one in particular I've read recently. It's, uh, it's actually a memoir by uh, by Phil Knight, who is the uh, founder of Nike. He wrote a, a book called uh, Shoe Dog, and it basically uh, tells the story of uh, how he, as a kid, came about with this idea to create this you know this massive brand that it is today, and how he came about doing that. It's an entrepreneurial journey. As uh, a story, It's what it is, and it's it's a very telling story where you feel like many times uh, as if you were there in the room with him making these decisions. And he is such an entrepreneur, uh, especially through reading this book, you get to learn how how courageous he is, how ballsy he is, and how many times this massive brand almost never even came about. I recommend this book to anybody who wants to be an entrepreneur or who is an entrepreneur or just anyone in general. It's an amazing read.
0: Actually, I've had that book
1: recommended to
0: me by one of the previous guests, uh, Ryan Lee. I think it was episode number eight, and he highlighted uh, how amazing this book is as well. So I definitely need to pick this up. Yes, yes, highly recommended. So how much time do you spend reading or on personal development uh, every day?
1: It's hard to calculate, but I I personally spend a good amount, I would say at least an hour to two even, (laughs) just thinking about all the times I'm on the car, I'm listening. You know, every day I wake up, I try to read a little bit. With breakfast, I, I, don't know, I eat and read at the same time. Uh, I know some people say that's a bad habit, but you know, I find it valuable to, to eat and, and uh, essentially get knowledge into my brain at a very early start of the day. Uh house many parts of my brain to get activated. Uh, I guess start getting creative. I start to imagine things. So that helps with my brain and getting up in the morning. But yeah, about an hour to two.
0: So that reminds me of one of the quotes by Charlie Munger. He says that, Not until he's spent at least the first two hours of the day educating himself will he sell any of his hours to other people. Now, he was a lawyer and business partner for Warren Buffett. Right. So if he took those first couple of hours, studied, read, similar to you while eating breakfast, and before he goes out there and does other things, he uses those first couple, those best hours of the day to educate himself. Yes. I think
1: you're both onto something there. Absolutely. And I actually want to add one more thing, which is also physical health. I think it's, uh, it's a very critical thing that many entrepreneurs, especially in the early days, they kind of, they overlook this kind of physical health to themselves. I think it's very important to take care of yourself, right? Eat the right nutrition, you know, that you can, and also work out. Even just taking a walk outside in the morning or just, uh, I try to run, I run every, I run every day. I actually, I'm a triathlon, so I do, I run, I swim, I bike at every day couple of day basis so it helps me to stay sharp i think it's something i've noticed over the years as i've done this is i make much better decisions when i'm physically healthy and i'm staying sharp because all my body is a weapon right my brain is a weapon my body is a weapon and everything is in tune where you're at a steady level where you can make the best possible decisions for yourself for your life and and for your business so i would add to not just You know, reading in the morning, but also trying to get some physical health, get the blood pumping so you're staying sharp as well.
0: Perfect. So coming at things from a really holistic approach, coming at it from education, coming at it from a physical side, coming at it from a nutrition side, trying to have everything in place. So when you go forward as an entrepreneur, when you have these ideas and this creativity and you go to build your business, you're already at peak performance.
1: Absolutely. You got to think of yourself as an athlete. You know, and, and just going back to my analogy of um, your team as like a basketball team, you know, you're very much the, the head man, right? You're LeBron James, so you need to stay in shape so that you can, you know, make the best decisions for your team and, you know, make the best plays and calls. Fantastic. So,
0: Mike, say that I come back to New York this year to visit you and, and we go out to dinner uh, what was that restaurant we went out for dinner at?
1: Oh, we went to Tao. To Tao. Downtown.
0: And we were yes. drinking, I think, uh, like passion fruit mojitos or something like that. Oh, I, we were drinking everything. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I lean in and I'm like, okay, Mike, what's the one big secret to success? What's the one big secret as an entrepreneur that if I told anyone, you'd have to kill me? What's that one big secret, Mike?
1: I think the, the one big secret is, again, my sound cliche, but to me, it's persistence. I think unless you quit, you're never really out of the game and you constantly, you still have your shot of obtaining whatever it is that you want to obtain. And again, this doesn't mean that, you know, you you need to stay stubborn. Like one of my first mistakes as an entrepreneur is just staying stubborn on, on the idea, right? The ideas can change, but for you as an entrepreneur, your journey never ends. So for you to obtain success, no matter how or what that means to you, it's always obtainable as long as you just, you never really give up on yourself, right? It's there. It's waiting for you. And it's just persistence. Just keep going it, one step at a time.
0: Excellent. Excellent. So thank you very much, Michael, for being on the show. If people want to get a hold of you, where's the best place for them to reach out to you?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. My email is michael at spinny, S-P-I-N-N-Y dot C-O. That's uh, my company URL, but anybody can hit me up online. All oh, my Twitter handles, my Instagram handles is at I- am mike chang uh that's i-a-m-m-i-k-e-c-h-i-a-n-g and anybody can add me on linkedin facebook i mean i'm available online so you can always hit me up excellent and
0: if people want to see the websites you can go to fitbark.com or playjoyride.com and i'll make sure all of this information is in the show notes at expat money show michael thanks so much for being on the show i really appreciate it oh it's been a pleasure thank you Hey everyone, I just want to tell you about a great opportunity. You see, we've had a massive interest lately in learning a second language. And I do a lot of my language training with my very good friend, Ollie Richard. We've been friends for three or four years now, and he's been on my program, and I've been on his program, and he spoke at my conferences, and I've spoke at his conferences. And he really is a genius. His Techniques for teaching languages are just out of this world. He actually makes it fun and enjoyable. He was one of the main drivers for me rekindling my interest in Spanish. And under his tutelage and his advice and using his programs, I went from really crummy Spanish to quite fluent in a really short amount of time. So if you are looking to learn a second language or maybe even a third language, what I want you to do is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash language forward slash language, and it's going to redirect you to some of all these best courses out there in the world. And there's some special promotions going on, some special opportunities for subscribers of my podcast. So I hope you take us up on this offer and go and check it out. That's expatmoneyshow.com forward slash language to get the best resources in the world for learning a second language. Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop Capitalizing on the Globally Recognized Resort Brand Coming.